It was two in the morning. The phone rings. John frantically reaches for the light on his nightstand. He knocks over his cell phone in the process. The sound of the phone dropping on the floor startles his wife. What's wrong, she mutters while rubbing her eyes. Hello? It's Jalen, their oldest son, deployed in the Middle East. John can hear his son's angst. He knows there's something wrong. For the next 10 minutes, he listens as his son unloads. He's in a war he cannot understand, and he's committed deeds he cannot explain. The father waits for a pause in the gush of complaint, confusion, and fear, then softly says, Jalen, I love you. Another few minutes passes, filled with another firestorm of words, then a lull. The father says, Jalen, I love you. Dad, I can't eat, I can't sleep, I can't read, I can't even concentrate. Dad, I'm broken. This is all too much for me. Then, a deafening pause. But the father fills the gap. Jalen, I love you. You know what the father is doing in this story? He's simply affirming the love for his son in the midst of a time of war. How powerful and necessary it is to affirm the Father's love in a time of crisis. Something is wrong in chapter 10 of Daniel. He's in a deep depression and he's been there for three weeks. For three weeks he does not eat or sleep. He does not bathe or shave. And that leads us to our first truth. And it's this. There will be times in life when tears are your meat and drink. I first want to show you that in Daniel's life and then in your own life. Verse 2 tells us that Daniel's been mourning for 21 days. But why? Well, there's three reasons. First, he's left behind. Verse 1 hints at it. It says, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Church, you tell me, in what year? Third year. Now we know from Ezra 1 verse 1 that in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. And what was the proclamation? The next three verses unfolded. It, it walks out this edict granting permission for the Jews to return to Jerusalem and build the temple and start their worship of Yahweh again. Two years ago, 50,000 Jews went back home without Daniel. And you would think Daniel would be leading the parade. But he's not even in it. Maybe he was too old to make the trip. He's around 85, well into his retirement years. He's feeling isolated. His soul thirsts for God as a deer pants for flowing streams. So first, he was left behind. Secondly, he's discouraged. The 50,000 Jews, when they arrived, they quickly laid the foundation for the temple. And they had high hopes for returning God's temple to its former glory. 
But some Samaritans who lived there opposed the work and made their lives miserable. And according to Ezra 4.4, God's people were discouraged and afraid to continue in the building project. The work ground to a halt. The foundation was laid, but nothing is going into the air. It's not rising. It's an abandoned building project. And obviously, Daniel's heard about this. He's heard that the glory has not returned to Israel. He's discouraged. Thirdly, he realizes most of God's people don't want to return home. The first bus back to Jerusalem wasn't limited to 50,000 people. 150,000 could have gone back if they chose. But they've become comfortable in Babylon. After so many years of not singing the Lord's song in a strange land, apparently some of the Jews have decided that they didn't even want to sing the Lord's song in his own land. And this so wrecked Daniel that in verse 3 he says, and I quote, I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. Now every culture mourns uniquely. We wear black and and ladies sometimes put a veil over their faces. Mourning in Daniel's culture meant foregoing items associated with feasting, delicacies, That little phrase means bread of delight. In in other words, Daniel didn't eat the really good stuff, the really special stuff, the fancy food. He shunned the rich cuisine. No caviar, no white truffles, no Kobe beef, no lobster. Fasting in the Bible was not always eating nothing. Very often it was restraining from certain foods and just eating the staple grub to stay alive. It was refraining from the banquets, uh, the festivals, and the times of special indulgences of food. It's eating grass at Thanksgiving and no sweets on July 4th. And and it's really interesting. You'll note it gives a date at the beginning of verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month. That, That reveals to us that Daniel is fasting during feast days. According to the time frame, he's been fasting during the feast days of Passover and unleavened bread. Back home, these were not the days for fasting. These were the days for celebration. But he's not only fasting. Notice in verse 3, he's refusing to anoint himself. What does that mean? The climate in the Near East was hot and dry during much of the year. And the oils and lotions helped soothe the skin. And this anointing really had three uses. One was to protect the skin from the strength of the sun. And Daniel said no. No SBF 100 for Daniel. Another was to keep the skin soft. Daniel said no. No Aveeno for men for me. Another was to add a fragrance to the body because they didn't have the deodorants that we have. And, And you do not find in Daniel's grocery cart Dove deodorant or Old Spice cologne. Daniel was in a state of prayerful turmoil. His stomach is growling and his body is stinking. His tears are his meat and drink. A.W. Tozer said, The Bible was written in tears. And two tears 
it will yield its best treasures. And friends, that is good news for those of you who open the Bible with postpartum tears and marriage tears and deployment and PCS tears and falsely accused tears and depression tears. And it's in those times that you must be made aware of the second truth. That there is an invisible spiritual battle going on behind your earthly mess. There is an invisible spiritual battle going on behind your earthly mess. Again, I'll show you this first in Daniel's life and, and then in yours. Daniel is standing along the riverbank of the Tigris. Approximately 20 miles from the capital city of Babylon. And he's certainly not singing. He's weeping. Then suddenly he says in verse 5, I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold. That, that's an exclamation term. Behold a man clothed in linen. So this man was, was hovering over the river. And his clothing is unique. Linen. Linen was worn by the priest. Particularly the high priest. He wore linen when he entered into the Holy of Holies, the Day of Atonement, to offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of his people's sins. When standing in a puddle of tears, the best news you can receive is the good news about forgiveness. Notice this man didn't show up in Jordans and dark fubu jeans. Nor did he show up in a cowboy hat and boots and some Levi's. You've heard the old country song. By the way, I like to quote country songs because so many of you hate and despise country music. I've never, I, just, I think it's wicked, honestly. But the old country song says, Blame it all on my roots. I showed up in boots and ruined your black tie affair. Well, speaking of, of roots, where does this guy in verse 5 come from? Well, it depends on who you ask. Some say he's a Christophany. This is a view held by many respectable scholars like Brian Chappell, Daniel Aiken, uh, John MacArthur, and a ton of commentators. They believe this is the pre-incarnate second member of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus existed before Bethlehem. He's uncreated. He existed eternally. So these scholars believe this is Jesus before Bethlehem. When Jesus was born, they wrapped the babe Jesus in swaddling clothes. And some have called the Old Testament swaddling clothes. Well, is Jesus swaddled in verse 5? The description of this figure in Daniel is very similar to Christ's description in Revelation. In both, they're clothed in white robes. In both, they're wearing a gold belt. In both, they have blazing eyes. In both, they have bronze skin. In both, their voices echo like the booming roar of a crowd. So some say it's a Christophany. Others say it's an angel. So it's either a Christophany or an angelophany. This is a position held by Kevin DeYoung along with a host of other scholars. And, and I hold to this position as well, that it's an angel. I could do another chart and show you the similarities of this angel and the cherubims in Ezekiel 1. This angel is blazingly and gloriously holy because he's been in the presence of God and he's reflecting his creator. 
Now, I'll give you further evidence for my position later. But according to verse 7, Daniel's the only one who saw this angel. And it was so terrifying and powerful that the people that were with him ran and hid themselves. Notice verse 9b. I heard the sound of his words. I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. (laughs) This angel reflecting the power and glory of God shattered Daniel. He went weak in the knees and blood drained from his face. It's more than he could handle. He was overwhelmed. It basically knocked him out cold. He was undone, wiped out, comatose. This was an 85-year-old prophet, flat out with a mouth full of dirt, his nose in the ground. Now Daniel eventually he comes back out of his deadness to the point of consciousness, and he's able to get up on his hands and knees. And he's there, trembling, in, a, in an unsteady condition, tottering back and forth, trying to regain enough strength to stand up. And then he hears from the angel, the second part of verse 12, I have come because of your words. What's interesting is that we find in the next verse that it took the angel 21 days to get there. How many days was Daniel fasting? 21 days. That's interesting. So what's going on here? Is heaven three weeks away from earth? Did it take them that long to get there? No. The answer is found in verse 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days. Now let, let me break this down for you because this is straight up wild. I mean this is like Star Wars wild. This angel got jumped in a backstreet cosmic alley by the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now John Calvin said that the prince was the earthly ruler Cambyses. But how likely is it that Daniel sees God's angel detained in a skirmish by a human? I mean, there's accounts where one angel took care of 100,000 humans. So I don't think that's it. No, these verses give us a hint to a cosmic battle. Apparently, there was a demon prince of Persia who opposed God's people. And most scholars believe this. Before creation... When Satan rebelled against God in eternity past, Satan was kicked out of heaven. And there were also angels with him who apparently were given a moment of free will and they chose sin. And we now call these angels demons. These agents of Satan are active all throughout the Old and the New Testament. And they resist God's purposes. And this particular demon prince held up God's messenger so that he would not deliver God's encouraging message to Daniel. And he's obviously a powerful adversary. Or powerful enough to delay God's angel for a period of three weeks. And let me just give a sidebar here. This is why I do not believe this angel is a Christophany. The angel was overpowered by an angel demon. And Jesus would have never been overpowered. Now the way that commentators get around that is to say that the first figure that appeared to Daniel was Christ. And the second figure was an angel. But I see no transition in the text and and no evidence for that. How did this angel eventually escape the demon agent? Well, the end of verse 13. But Michael, 
one of the chief princes came to help me. Michael. Michael was a super angel, a hero angel, a champion angel, the Jack Bauer of angels. And he showed up around day 20, and um, the text says he drop kicks the demon. That, that's my translation. I don't know why these people don't, don't pull me in on these translation committees. But he drop kicks the demon. Now, here, I want us to step back for a moment. Daniel had an invisible mess, a political mess, a social mess, an economic mess, all on his hands. And it was really easy for him to think, this is all earthly. But God sends a messenger and he says, it's also spiritual. Daniel says, it's an earthly battle. God says, it's also a spiritual battle. Behind our social unrest in the United States is a spiritual battle. Behind every election and every past law is a spiritual battle. Behind your depression, your discouragement, and your tears is an underlying spiritual battle. And you must recognize it. You will never be able to process your situation properly until you understand the greater battle behind your struggles. Which leads us to our third truth. The only thing that will sustain you in those times is a gospel touch. Daniel says in verse 15. When he had spoken to me, the angel. When the angel had spoken to me according to these words. I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my Lips. Now let's stop there. Because this isn't the only time that an angel has done this. An angel once took a coal from the altar and touched the lips of Isaiah. And that event paralyzed him. And this particular event here, it nearly paralyzes Daniel. He could hardly breathe. This is actually the second time the angel touched Daniel. The first time was in verse 10. And notice in verse 18. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me for the third time. Towner aptly calls these three angelic touches, he calls them celestial first aid. I call them the three-touch gospel. God, through this glorious heavenly figure, three separate times says in our vernacular, Daniel... I love you. Something is very wrong with Daniel. And what he needs is his father to affirm his love to him in a time of crisis. God waits for a break in the frustration and the anger. And he says, Daniel, I love you. In the middle of war, Daniel, I love you. Notice verse 19. And he said, oh man, this is the angel. And the angel said, oh man, greatly loved. Fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And Daniel's here. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. 
Notice that the angel's touch strengthens Daniel, restoring his vitality. That's a miracle. All of a sudden, these angels have the power to put strength right back into a body. The phrase, old man greatly loved, means old man greatly desired or precious. In the midst of your tears, God says, I desire you. You are precious to me. Friends, if that doesn't put you on your face, I, I don't know what will. Whatever is happening or not happening, you are greatly loved. You, you know, just like Daniel, when you've been touched with the gospel. Because that touch leaves a mark. It makes you lose taste for the trivial. When you have been touched by God's glory and love, you are never the same. The angel continues the conversation with Daniel. Verse 20b. Now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. The angel says... When I'm done with you, Daniel, I've, I've got to go back and fight this demon some more. And the verse continues, And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. So there was a demon assigned to Persia, and there's a demon assigned to Greece. And you're thinking like, man, this is, this is, this is wild. I'm consistent with the interpretation all throughout church history. Satan has, had, Satan has an incredibly sophisticated, demonic, supernatural network of beings called demons. And they're doing everything they can to thwart the plan of God. They are behind all the activities of human history. And before the angel leaves for his second deployment, the angel informs Daniel in, in verse 21, Michael is your prince. But the word your there is plural in the Hebrew. It's not a reference to Daniel's guardian angel, but to Israel's guardian angel. And the implications of of these statements are clear. Israel had a mighty angelic supporter in the heavenly realm. Therefore, this is so important. Therefore, regardless of Israel's political, military, and economic weaknesses, its existence was assured because no earthly power could resist their great prince. In application, I want to answer three questions. The first question is this. Why would God protect Israel so fiercely? God chose a nation in which to send his Messiah, his beloved one, his uncreated one, his son. And he chose Israel. And since Genesis 3.15, Satan has attempted to stop the Messiah from coming. And the best way to stop the Messiah is to kill, destroy, eliminate the people group from whom the Messiah would come. And the entire Old Testament tells the same story over and over again. Satan trying to destroy the seed of God. David and Goliath wasn't about David or Goliath. It was about a cosmic battle that was being waged for eternity. If David died, then of course there would be no David. But if David died, there would be no Solomon. If Solomon died, there would be no follow the genealogy. Eventually, there's no Jesus. If Goliath defeated, killed David that day, there would be no Messiah. All these Old Testament stories are about God preserving his people so he can send his son through his people. But 
But we preachers say things like, pick up your stone and throw it at your giant. Dare to be a Daniel. No, we're missing it. Each event is a gospel touch. I love you and I will provide a Messiah for you. Satan's most strenuous activity cannot overthrow God's purposes for his people. Question number two. How can this chapter benefit our prayer life? How can this chapter benefit our prayer life? There are three truths about prayer clearly in this passage. Uh, you notice how I have like each question has like three parts under it. I'm trying to get it down, people, but it's hard. All right, it's a lot of verses here. This passage tells us three things about prayer clearly. First, the believer's prayers are immediately heard by God. Angel says, I was sent 21 days ago. Immediately heard by God. Secondly, demonic forces can delay the answer to prayer. Thirdly, wrestling in prayer is exhausting work. Daniel's prayer unwittingly but inevitably linked him to the cosmic confrontation. And most of us think of prayer as a retreat from action, that it's not an offensive weapon, but it is. St. Clair Ferguson says, what these leaders needed most, the Jewish leaders needed most, as Moses had needed before, was for someone who would engage in the hidden but strategic work of prayer for the defense and advance of the kingdom of God. And if this reality is true, and I believe it is, why do we not go to battle in our prayer life? That's why I'm consistently, constantly pushing for you to pray for the church members by name. Consistently pray for the elders. Pray for unreached people groups. Because we're in a spiritual battle. Question number three. What do we learn about spiritual warfare from this passage? The veil is, is pulled back slightly in chapter 10 and giving us a glimpse of the invisible war that is raging around us. Persia and Greece are gone. Where are their demons? Don't suppose that they're just sitting on their blessed assurances hanging out. No. They've moved on to new tasks. Spiritual warfare is real. And in our North American modern scientific culture, we are encouraged not to think this way. Abraham Kuyper, that famous Dutch prime minister and theologian, said at the beginning of this century, and I quote, If, if the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came into view, it would expose a struggle so intense, so convulsive, so sweeping, that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. World War II, a mere game. By World War I, a mere game by comparison. He continues, not here, but up there. That is where the real conflict is waged. Our earthly struggle grows in its backlash. Grows in its backlash. End quote. God wants us to see clearly that life isn't a picnic, but a battleground. Have you spoken to long-term missionaries who visit the States? This is why they get so frustrated with us Americans. 
because we are blind to the spiritual battle going on around us. We treat it like that stuff only goes on in Africa. It's not real here. It may be real there, but it's not real here. We, we are not playing games, brothers and sisters. We are at war. The Apostle Paul was not joking when he wrote Ephesians six twelve. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now, I want to leave you, I want to leave you with three comforts. All right, I like the number three today. I'm going to leave you with three comforts because I don't want you to be haunted by this chapter. I want you to be comforted by this chapter. So three quick comforts. Comfort number one. No follower of Jesus should be anxious about demons. No. Verse 19 reveals that this vision, the purpose of it was to bring strength, peace, and courage. So turn your eyes to the glorious God who will ultimately put all demons in the fire. And let that bring you peace, strength, and courage. The second comfort. You can grow in your walk with Christ in this area. You can become more discerning. You can become more aware, less fearful, more hopeful. Now, some people go crazy on this passage, talking about territorial spirits and demons that control certain geographical regions. And I, th I think that's a stretch. There's a famous book that has influenced um, you know, some, some of the people I look up to, like, like John Piper and some others. I think, I think that's a stretch. We, we do need to realize spiritual battle is real. So he, here's some just beginning fun reads. Uh, Randy Alcorn has a book entitled Lord, Lord Falgren's Letters. And um, that, that's helpful. Just help you see the battle behind the battle. C.S. Lewis has a, a famous one, Screwtape Letters. Actually, Randy Alcorn kind of updated and improved C.S. Lewis's. C.S. Lewis, Screwtape Letters, Randy Alcorn's Lord Falgren's Letters. Third comfort. Daniel's vision reminds us that God's people are never alone. Never alone. His angels... Hebrews 1.14 are all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation. Ultimately, our victory doesn't rest on our faithfulness to pray. Ultimately, our victory doesn't rest on the power of the angels who are fighting for us. No. Jesus Christ is the one himself who won the victory for us. On the cross, when your sins crucified this Christ, he called out to his Father. Not by phone, like Jalen, but by spirit. He wanted to hear his father affirm his love for him in a time of crisis. That day, the son did not hear the father's I love you. He didn't hear anything. Jesus didn't hear it that day so that you could hear it today. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.